bright-sighted. I can see the sun shining now outside. The air is still a bit brisk, but maybe I can get to the gym today after all to bounce around. I'll sign off for now. Take care of yourself. Remember, you do not walk alone. We are always with you and love you dearly. Don't ever forget that. So who is real? Who is um, always with me? And I am never, I never walk alone. Is he alluding to my mother who he murdered? continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I am your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Oh, wow. Another week is in the history books. And um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. Is Elon Musk still buying Twitter? Is Kyrie Irving going to come to the Los Angeles Lakers? What is going to happen to Kevin Durant? Now, for those of you that don't know, I'm a basketball fan um, and also a Twitter user. So I guess that makes both of those topics very interesting to me. But in all seriousness, another week in the history books. And we are back with another episode for you guys. So I want to say a quick shout out. To all my listeners, you guys listening right now, and those of you that are uh, finding me via TikTok or Instagram or the Twitter sphere, or those of you that reach out via my YouTube channel, uh, which is youtube.com forward slash call your Landry, which is where you're probably watching this if you're watching this podcast. Um, and for those of you tune in every week and listen to me, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. All my Patreon people, I appreciate you as well. So um, this week I had a few different ideas for some things that I wanted to discuss. And this week I have, of course, letters from my father. And I pulled out some really interesting ones. And again, these are all very random. I pull them out of a bin. Um, I have not looked at them yet. Uh, I just look at the dates and I hope that the dates co correspond with or coincide with what is actually in the envelope. But I don't really know um, because it got a little messed up when I made the film A Murder of Mansfield because we were going through everything and kind of like that. So uh, we'll see what's going on with these letters. But in the meantime, I want to get to a listener question. And this listener question that came in this week was one that really hit me and also one that uh, I've wanted to talk about for a while, but I actually wanted to devote an episode or two about this particular topic. And um, I'm just going to go ahead with it. So this week's listener shout out goes to Michelle McNeil. And Michelle re reached out to me on Instagram. And I want to just, this is a long message, but, I, but it has a really great point to it. Hi, Collier. My name is Michelle McNeil, and I have been watching your YouTube videos, listening to your podcast, and watched A Murder in Mansfield. I just want to say how inspiring you are for surviving all that you have and using your experiences to help others who need it. Sorry, I have a question, and it's long, and Instagram won't let me paste it all at once. 
Years ago, I had a student in my fourth grade class whose father murdered her mother at work. Then he called relatives and threatened to come to the schools to pick up their children. Several of our schools went into lockdown as they had older children as well. This happened when she was in the third grade and I also had her in my class the following year. I spoke extensively with the school psychologist and her aunt and uncle about how best, best to help her and followed their lead. The girl seemed to be doing well by the time I had her in class, but she did have some difficult times where she would start to silently cry in class. I took her aside and told her anytime she felt like she needed a break, she could signal me and she could go to the bathroom or go to the office or speak to someone. If she wanted to talk to me, I would take her in the hall and I would just say whatever was needed. My heart would just break because I wasn't trained in how to deal with something like this and wasn't sure if I was doing or saying the right things. She seemed to respond well and would sometimes talk about her mom, the good times they had, and how loving she was. I would offer her a safe space and as many hugs as she wanted. I think it was all I could do. Long story short, my question is, is there something else that teachers can do to help kids through something like this? Did any of your teachers do anything special for you? There are other forms of trauma that I see almost every year, and I tend to be just to be there and offer safe space for them to vent if they want, and I don't push or ask for invasive questions. I've heard you talk about just wanting to feel some normality during your life, and I try to offer that for the, for the time I have them in my class. Many times, I, I had never seen my students once they move on to middle, middle school, and I think this, this family left our district. So I don't know how the kids are doing. I say a lot of prayers for all my kiddos, and I hope they are surrounded by good and loving people. Oh my God, this is such a long, sorry for this, such a long message. Teachers are not always known for their brevity. Take care and you are, and know you are doing amazing things for anyone who needs to know that they are not alone. Sincerely, Michelle. Okay. So as I stumbled through that, apologies. This is a really interesting question in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, it's very tragic what happened to this girl. I mean, my heart breaks hearing this and also knowing that the teachers, you know, I'll say this, um, in my opinion, being a teacher in this world is one of the, one of the most important occupations a individual can have because you are working with impressionable young minds that are shaping the future of our planet, really. Um, and it is not an easy job. And as of late, it has become a rather sometimes dangerous job. However, I will say that unequivocally, without question, my teachers who were there for me, when I was going through all of the things that I was going through, whether it be right when my mother was murdered and I was coming into class and my teacher at the time was Sandy Weaver at Discovery School, and then it was Carol Paulo at Discovery School as well, those teachers really were very impactful for me and they always lent an ear to me when I needed to talk. And a lot of people ask me, whether it be in DMs, whether they ask me personally, or they reach out to me, uh, you know, and they ask on Instagram lives or on TikTok, 
A lot of people want to know what I did for like therapy and how I got through this. I will, without question, the teachers that were there in my life for me were monumental in my personal processing of my grief, in the processing of what I, I was trying to, to accomplish with, with the loss of my mother, as far as focusing on school, as far as focusing on that, again, that just sense of normalcy. And as I got into high school and was, you know, obviously going through adolescence and puberty, there were other teachers. Sue Snyder comes to mind. Um, Cindy Carr. Well, she was Cindy Polis at the time. Uh, Carolyn Beer. Those were all my English teachers, actually, in my high school. And um, I developed a really great rapport with those women. I mean, uh, all of my teachers, apparently, as I mentioned, were women. And there were a few great teachers as well. Mark Roseberry comes to mind um, that I went to. You know, These were from Ontario High School, where I ended up graduating from. Um, but they were monumental. And I, and I think back a lot, actually, to my times relating to them and how they were they treated me like an adult. They didn't talk down to me. I mean, unless I was in trouble, but like they didn't talk down to me. They made me feel heard. They made me feel respected. They made me feel understood. And I think that is an amazing gift. And quite honestly, it is something that I still carry with me to this day. And I still think about those times that I had, whether it be in study hall, talking their ear off as they're trying to like munch down their lunch in privacy. I'm sure like me knocking on the door <laughs> was like, oh God, here he is. And as anyone who listens to this program or knows me, brevity is also not one of my strong suits. <laughs> so I can imagine just how much or intense I could have been and the care and compassion that those teachers who I just mentioned showed me during these very monumental and pivotal moments in my life and my personal development, they were, I mean, they were amazing. And one of the things I think that I, and, and when I talk about my story, when I was able to go to discovery school, when I was a, a child, when I had just lost my mother and when it were, when she was, um, you know, missing and I was able to speak to Lieutenant Messmore and give him clues because I was in a state where I, I was, you know, um, I, I was in school and I was safe and I didn't have to worry about my father or my grandmother or anybody interfering with me talking to the police to try to give them clues to help find my mother. And when I uncovered the photographs of the house and the girlfriend and things of that nature, I felt safe in my school to talk to them. One of the things that I feel about with the pandemic, when kids weren't able to go to school, when they weren't able to leave households where they were abused or their, their, one of their parents was suffering abuse or the whole family was suffering abuse and, and neglect or even hunger, uh, you know, and, uh, or alcoholism or dealing with problems at home. And they didn't have any respite to go to a place like their own sanctuary, which is what I had. And I, if I didn't have that, I don't know if I would have turned out the same way, to be honest with you. So 
to those teachers, Sandy Weaver, Carol Paulo, Sue Snyder, Cindy Carr slash Polis at that time, and Carolyn Beard, Beer, Carolyn Beer, um, Mark Rosebray. All of you guys were very monumental in making and creating and helping shape the person that sits before this microphone and this camera right here, right now. So teachers, without question in my mind, are priceless. I digress. Let's get into today's episode. So I have three letters in front of me, a couple small envelopes, 25 cents. So this is a long time ago. It says April, April, 1991. And we have another one. This one actually has no, yeah, actually the date is worn off on this one. Um, let's see here. But yeah, this is when my father was incarcerated at Warsi in Lebanon, Ohio. This one is, oh, I'm sorry, February 25th. It looks like 1991. So my father wasn't even in prison for more than, not even a year. And then August 14th, 1991, again at Warsi, Warren Correctional Institution. And uh, yeah, August 14th, 1991. For those of you seeing the envelopes in on YouTube in the video. And um, yeah. All right. So <laughs> the first one has a little cute little mouse holding some cherries. I don't know. Do mice like cherries? I don't know. My father would get these, these um, would have these envelopes designed. You know, you trade things in prison and whatnot. And he would uh, have people write on them or draw on, doodle on them. Um, another one is a, is a boy cuddling up. A rabbit? Is that a rabbit? Is it a bear? Is it a koala? I don't know. Anyways. Prison is full of cottage industries, as we all know. Um, all right, we're going to open this one with the mouse carrying cherries. <laughs> Who knows? Um, all right, this one looks like it's typed. Looks like a little water damage. Some of these. Um, all right. Saturday morning, February 23rd, 1991. So again, my father... This is five days before my, God, would it be a 13th birthday? Yeah, 13th birthday. Um, so I was still 12. And um, yeah, my father was not even in prison for, I don't know, eight months, nine months, something like that at this time. Dear Collier, how are you, birthday boy? I hope your cold is better by now. Mine has stabilized so far, but the sore throat is a real pain, believe me. Everything is in whispers for me, although this morning I think I'm on the road to some improvement. I love you, silly bear. The weather is really crazy here the past few days. No wonder everyone is sick. The temperature yesterday was near 50 degrees, just high enough to incubate the bugs. Don't ask what's going on with the typewriter. It must be ill also. I don't know why it skipped like this, but anyhow, this throat is a real bugger to cure. Most likely viral in origin as opposed to a bacterial strep infection. Did you have to take any antibiotics for your cold? Hope it didn't bother your asthma. Have you been tapered off the medications yet? So really fast. So um, my father, obviously being a doctor, would care for me as a doctor would uh, when I was asthmatic because I grew up very heavily asthmatic. And um, 
I would often have to take steroids and take steroid injections when I was a kid, which were really bad, like prednisone, like cortisone was a regular staple for me because my lungs would get so swollen. Um, I am not that heavily asthmatic anymore, but I had some real problems when I was a kid, especially from the ages of like, I want to say like nine to 14, 13, maybe 13, 14. I think I started growing out of it when I got into high school a little bit more. I mean, I still had exercise induced asthma, but it was much less worse. I'm sure I had many asthma attacks still. I think, I think it also, it probably lasted up until college really. Um, so I was heavily asthmatic is the point. So my father was checking on that, which is interesting. He's being very nice in this one. I saw something really gross this morning on the television. There was a commercial about Ninja Turtle cakes made by Hostess. Have you seen these? Have you seen them yet? Anyways, the cake was green and they, and they said fresh baked from the sewer. How gross. I couldn't believe that they would even advertise something like that for people to eat. Yiko. I saw some of the Return of the Jedi on TV last night. Did you watch it? I can remember sitting with you as you watched that show for about a hundred times, a conservative estimate. I can remember when you were younger and afraid of Darth Vader. We were at the mall and he was there, he was there to get a picture with him and you were really afraid of him. You wouldn't let go of mommy and my hand as you, start, as you were staring at him as though he was going to take you away from us. No chance. Eventually you had your picture taken with him and all was well after that. So this is a really interesting thing. All right. So for those of you that, um, so of course I was into star Wars as most people my age growing up were, um, I mean, <laughs> I don't think my father watched the return of the Jedi with me, um, a hundred times. Um, I don't think that ever happened. I do remember going with my parents to see return of the Jedi in the movie theater in Mansfield, Ohio at Kingsgate cinemas. I'm pretty sure. But, um, interesting because Darth Vader was Luke's father and betrayed his son. Very interesting and killed a bunch of people too. Might even killed his mother. If I'm not mistaken. Um, I guess I'll have to watch the prequels to figure that out again. I don't know. Um, this is a weird one. How is school going? What is your best subject? How are the layups going? Still bouncing the wall? I haven't hit the gym too much in the past two weeks because of not feeling so hot, but that will change come Monday. I'll be back in action again. I just lost my appetite for any foods. That's what we get here. Quote, any foods. I plan to get into some serious exercise programs. One of the other prisoners is a type of trainer and he wants to start me on a rigorous weightlifting program to tone up what's already here rather than become quote Hulk Hogan. So I'm getting, going to give it a try and see what happens. All it is designed to do is to provide maximum efficiency and cut off some of the fat. I can see the sun shining now outside. The air is still a bit brisk, but maybe I can get to the gym today after all to bounce around. I'll sign off for now. Take care of yourself. Remember, you do not walk alone. We are always with you and love you dearly. Don't ever forget that. So who is real? Who is um, always with me? And I am never, I never walk alone. Is he alluding to my mother who he murdered? Is he alluding to himself that he's there? Like, uh, you know, he was just mentioning, I mean, this is not as overt as some of his other letters, but this is, um, you know, okay, so here's a remember a good time. And 
uh, we were at the mall. I protected you from Darth Vader. Mommy protected you. And then, oh, let's talk about this. Oh, and by the way, you're, you will never walk alone. We are here with you always by your side. Like, well, this is 1991. So he was, had just been incarcerated for, like I said, about eight or nine months at this time. Um, and actually in prison in Warren Correctional Institution. Wow. And I can still hear in my head when I say that I would hear the actual, um, recordings that come over the prison phone when you're, when you're talking to someone who's an inmate. So anyways, that's a very interesting little letter, but again, a little bit with the manipulation, like, Hey, remember some really good times? Cause you didn't have very many with me. And then I'm going to let you know that you're, you're not going to walk alone. So this second letter is, I don't have a date for it, but it's also a small envelope. Like I said, it has the little boy cuddling a bunny or a koala, a koala bunny mix. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah. And he still addresses it to me. Collier L Boyle, even though my name wasn't that at the time because I was adopted, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> tomato, tomato. Sunday afternoon, March 4th. Dear Bumper. So my father, some of you know, uh, that was my nickname. Boy, did it turn cold today. Yesterday was kind of nice. Then bam, in with the chill. I've got another sweater on to keep me warm today. Even the fingers are cold on the old console. What's it like up yonder? Oh, what's it like up yonder? I'm certain it's just as cold in Mansfield. Well, the old round ball continues onward. I was sad to see Temple lose today because it was a pretty close game. They lost by three points. St. John's is playing Duke and it doesn't look good at this writing. Youch. But the Big East did make it into the regional finals. Anyhow, I see the heroes in the half shell, alluding to Ninja Turtles, are at it again in the green teens have returned to complete their complete with their ooze. I am, or maybe I'm not, surprised by all the things they are advertising about the ninjas, but I guess that's Madison Avenue for you. I'm going to head back to the pod for supper soon. Just a little note letting you know you were in my thoughts and prayers. I love you, bundle. Take care, Collier. Hugs and kitties. Hugs and kitties, daddy. Um, yeah. I was into Ninja Turtles when I was a kid, so my father's maybe... Uh, maybe he is, you know, trying to get into my good graces. Again, he is not even incarcerated for a year at this point. And, you know, often it turns as you've heard in other letters. So this is August 14th. So there's a third letter here I have, again, from Warren Correctional Institution. And this one is from August 14th, 1991. So he's been in for now over a year in Warren Correctional Institution. Wednesday morning, August 14th. Dear Collier, I received... Oh, now, noticing this um, paper is super wrinkly. If you guys can see it on the YouTubes, you see how wrinkly it is? Like, I must have balled this up and thrown it out. I don't know. We'll see. Um, Dear Collier, I received your letter last night. Your, I received your last letter and was glad to hear from you. I imagine you're still on vacation trip to the shore. I hope all went well and you saw many interesting sights and not too much sunburn. Things are the same here, still in the struggle to overturn this illegal conviction. 
So it doesn't take much. It's, you know, we go through two letters with a lot of like small talk and, hey, remember the good times and, oh, remember I protected you from Darth Vader and then bam, the illegal conviction. But I will continue to fight in the courts for my freedom and the correction of this injustice against me and my family. Well, that's interesting. I mean, so against me and my family. So am I part of that family? And what is the injustice that my father is alluding to? Um, I feel like over the years, just as sort of an aside before I finish this letter, my father would um, come back to this narrative of the wrongful conviction, the injustice of all of this. And as we know, many years later, and as we knew back then when he was convicted, when I heard him murder my mother, when I saw his behavioral patterns, when I saw the way that he was behaving towards me and being, you know, evasive and prevaricative with the, the police, the way that his temper was so apoplectic, the way that he was just, you know, uh, in a rage and in a, in a, in a frenzy after my mother quote disappeared after he killed her. Um, it's so, it's so bizarre to me that someone who knows that they murdered someone who was there because they were there, uh, they had to do it, how they can just try to, to project this other narrative on, you know, your son, whose mother you murdered. And then on, you know, obviously my father is gearing up to uh, have an appeal, which he, he did. And he went through the appellate process, I believe a couple of times actually. Uh, grabbing for straws on a number of issues from me being coached to Dave Messmore taking me to a bar and getting me drunk when I was 11 years old or something like some ludicrous stuff. I, I have no idea. Um, these are all things. And as we delve into more letters on this program, we are going to hear more of these stories, but um, yeah, this is fascinating. And him just really trying to project this narrative that he was illegally convicted. I don't know how he thinks that or what his rationale is, but um, again, you did it, man. Like, I don't really understand what else there is to talk about. So anyways, back to the letter. And again, and also the injustice against him and my family. He doesn't say our family, like referring to me as being a part of that family. Um, because I think underneath it all, he is, he has this, you know, resentment towards me for testifying, for, uh, being the one who led the police to, you know, understand that my mother wasn't just a missing person, but was rather a dead person, <laughs> a person that was killed by my father. And then they found her. Um, I mean, uh, the delusions of some of this is, is is I don't like to use the word crazy, but it is mind boggling for sure. Uh, you sound anxious about your new school. Hope you like it. Sounds like discovery school was beginning to be a problem for you. Was it? I don't know much about the Ontario middle school, but I imagine it must be okay. Well, actually, yeah. So, um, I had left my school, which was discovery school at that time. Recently, actually, they asked me if I would come back as an alumni and speak at an event. We'll see if that happens. Um, but yes, things got very uncomfortable at the school because the principal, Lynn Rigabach, had adapted, adopted my sister, uh, Elizabeth, and then they named her Caitlin. And this was probably six months after I last saw my sister because they wouldn't let me see her anymore. 
and um, there became a little bit of an uh, an issue, <laughs> to say the least, um, regarding that with my adopted parents, who were rightfully so angry about that, and um, myself, who was just completely brokenhearted that I couldn't have any contact with my sister for whatever reason. And like I said, I haven't seen her since like January or February 1991, so it's been a long time. Um, and this was August 14th, 1991. So that's why we left. Ah, okay. Back to the letter. Sherry and I have discussed you meeting with JJ. I think you had wanted that and spoke to Mr. Sigler about Sigler, I mean Ziegler, about it, who was, who has spoken with Sherry. So I believe JJ is who he's referring to is my sister, Chrissy, who was born 12 days before my father was arrested. And, um, yeah, my adopted parents were very, very, um, proactive in trying to get me to see both my sisters, uh, after adopting me and after, and trying to help us all forge some sort of relationship with my sister, Elizabeth, it was a no go. Um, with Sherry, she was amenable to it off and on. And, and I did get to see my sister when she was very little. And then uh, as she got older and we had a relationship up until when I made a murder in Mansfield, uh, we even went to see my father together in prison before I made a murder in Mansfield. It was the first time we were all sitting in the room together for the very first time and probably for the last time, sadly, but that was a very interesting experience, which I will talk about on another episode of the podcast for sure. Um, we are waiting for approval from the Richland County Children's Services before any visits. So it's up to the RCCS to give us the go ahead in writing and the okay from the juvenile court. Hopefully you will be seeing your sister soon. In the meantime, here is a nice picture of her. Well, I'm off to work. You take care, write soon, miss you and hope to get to see you soon. Get your pencils ready for school. Love, Daddy. Um, very interesting. And I don't know why my father called, refers to my sister as JJ. Is that like my father being John? Is that like John Jr., but not? <laughs> I don't know. And there's some other things in the envelope here. Looks like support our troops. These are photocopies of, yeah, support our troops. Operation Desert Storm. I realize probably a lot of the audience is not alive for Operation Desert Storm, but uh, that was a thing. The first Gulf War. Um, wow, lots of stuff. Operation Desert, yeah, lots of photocopies here from my father supporting the troops, which is always a good thing. But um, wow. I think every time I read these letters, no matter what, and obviously, like I've said in the program many times, you know, I pull these out randomly, right? Um, I'm never like, I'm never really surprised as to what I find because I always sort of know what the narrative is. I think in that first letter that I read when he's discussing the, the remember the good times, like, oh, watching Star Wars with you, or uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, a uh, hundred times at least as a conservative estimate, taking you to the mall to get your photograph with Darth Vader, but then you were scared of Darth Vader and we protected you and I protected you. And then, you know, this sort of, I, I feel like this is something that I felt about my father my entire 
life and especially in my adult life, nothing is ever genuine with this man. It's always setting something up because, you know, look, you're in prison. He's in for at least 21 and a half years at this point. Um, he's going to be. And if you're setting up a long game of trying to get out of prison, you're going to start dropping these little subtle hints of manipulation. And I feel that because these letters are so new, uh, when he was newly incarcerated, we're seeing those subtle hints. So let me remind you of the good times. Then let me remind you of how you're a part of us and, and we are always with you. Then the second letter, when he's discussing, you know, he's going to get the illegal conviction overturned, you know, that is a very bold statement. Like what was illegal about your conviction, dad? Like you murdered my mother, you went to prison. That's how it works. <laughs> There's nothing illegal about that. And I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we look at the American justice system, and I know that a lot of people get very frustrated with it because there are a lot of technicalities. And I think that my father was at this time, and I remember as it went through later, years later and as i've read some of these letters before on the podcast where he was attempting to get an appeal and he did have an attorney i believe the gentleman's name was tom adgate uh and he was really grabbing at straws with any sort of technicality that he could use to get out of prison and my father composed this narrative from day one and again these little subtle drops of manipulation tactics in these letters to sort of begin to stoke the flames of, you know, you've betrayed me, you betrayed the family, you are missing out on the good times. And, you know, you, you fucked up. I think these are all seeds. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. And I know my father very, very well. And I feel like if you took these, if you, if you took it in a more of a macro perspective over the duration of these letters over years and the course of years and the way that his manipulation would, would continue and the way that he would use these tactics, like little hidden drops, just little subtle reminders. It's just, it's a mind fuck is what it is. It really is a mind fuck. It is definitely characteristic of a narcissist and a sociopath. I mean, this is malignant narcissism because this is a grand scheme to try to manipulate the chief witness that put him in prison in the first place. Well, my father put himself in prison by committing the act of murdering my mother, but I was the one who testified. So I feel like it's weird when I read these and I think about him, how nothing over my entire life my entire relationship with him, and I don't know about before he, he committed the crime and before he went to jail or prison because I didn't have that much interaction with my father because my mother protected me from my father, but I can't even begin to imagine the interactions that my mother would have with him and how she was manipulated and gaslighted and or gaslit. And the amount of emotional and psychological manipulation just wears on a person. And the man has never changed. And it's, it, it's just, it's like, it feels like just one big long con. 
That's what it feels like to me. One big, long con, one big, long hustle. Every time I begin to think about how my father related to me when he was in prison, when I would go to see him from when I was a, you know, a youth, <laughs> when I was, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old to when I was, um, you know, uh, an adult. And when you see me in a murder in Mansfield, nothing has changed. It's always the same game. It's a long game that he's been playing with the sole attempt of getting out of prison and not being accountable for the crime that he committed. But that's my opinion. And I would love to hear what your opinions are and what you guys think about this material. I know these letters weren't super exciting with, you know, these crazy uh, stories or anything, but these are really interesting because there's this, just this very subtle manipulation in the, the devil is always in the details, right? And it, it, yeah, it's these little flags that he's planting. It's little seeds that he's planting in me, seeds of doubt, seeds of guilt, seeds of manipulation. And I mean, look, I know I'm not the only person he wrote letters to, and I know that he did that to other people for sure. 100%. I've seen it, but it's fascinating. But I, you know, again, if this material is connecting with you guys, please reach out, find me on the social medias, the interwebs, uh, everywhere at Collier Landry. That's Instagram. That's Facebook. That's, uh, that's Twitter. That is TikTok. For those of you that follow me on TikTok, just reach out because uh, I love hearing from you guys. I love hearing how this material is connecting with you guys. And, um, and on a note from our earlier, from my earlier conversation, from the letter from Michelle McNeil, I want to say thank you to all of the teachers that were there for me growing up. You guys are all amazing. And, um, I know I've forgotten some of you, but you were all incredible and you helped mold me into the individual that I am today. So on that note, I'm Collier Landry and this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment. Please visit mpmpodcast.com to show your support today.